Well, providentially, the Sunday school curriculum were following in the pulpit. This was a review week, and I didn't know that when I went to start preparing the sermon this week. I said, how am I going to tie VBS into the sermon series? And I'm like, oh, it's a review week. So I will preach on the theme verse from our VBS this week. You saw the giant banner as you came in. Isn't that wonderful? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I think you understand enough about the fear of the Lord to not be shocked coming up to a church and seeing the fear of the Lord in a nice kind of kid's banner. You know what the fear of the Lord is, but I hope to do a little more teaching, help us better understand what the fear of the Lord is. My wife and I were both raised in churches and had completely different views of what the fear of the Lord is. She was raised in a Catholic church where the fear of the Lord was, you are in trouble and you ought to be afraid. And my experience in a more progressive Lutheran church growing up was, well, God's not that mad. (laughs) It's all good. And somewhere in between those two false views is what the fear of the Lord really means. And, and according to God's word, without the fear of the Lord, we can't attain to godly wisdom. It is the beginning of wisdom. How do you get wisdom? Well, you have to start with the fear of the Lord. The problem is we don't innately have proper fear of the Lord. Our sin nature doesn't fear the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You have to understand in Hebrew poetic writing, often verses are put in parallel where the first half of the verse is parallel to the second half to further explain the first part of the statement. So what does it mean the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the beginning of wisdom? Well, Solomon writes, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is parallel to the knowledge of the Holy One. Well, that doesn't sound quite like trembling in your boots and running for cover. What is the knowledge of the Holy One? In fact, the Hebrew word for knowledge from the root yada is the same word we see in Genesis 4.1 when the Bible reads... And Adam knew his wife. That's very intimate knowledge, right? Most intimate knowledge you could have of someone. And God chooses that same Hebrew verb when he talks about the knowledge of the Holy One. The fear of the Lord is then likened to a very intimate relationship that we ought to know God more intimately than any other relationship that we have. It should be our first, foremost, most important relationship in our life. You can't attain godly wisdom or understanding without this kind of relationship. We should be seeking knowledge of the Holy One. There's other words in Hebrew for facts about the Holy One. 
We're not after facts about God. Certainly we should know our catechisms and know the truth about God. But you can know about God in your head and not know about Him in your heart. Proverbs 1.7 reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Another way to write in Hebrew parallel is to contrast the first part of the statement with the second part. So now here we have a contrast. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the opposite of someone who has a fear of the Lord is a fool. Is a fool. Out of all the things the Bible could call you that you don't want to be called, the fool is one of them. And yet we're living now in a culture that has rejected the wisdom of God. Foolishness abounds. Those who consider themselves wise, wearing black robes even, running corporations, running city councils, running governments, running Congress, running a country. We don't see a lot of godly wisdom coming from leadership in our country. And the Bible spares um, no words by labeling those people fools. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is the fear of the Lord then? I like the definition provided by Jerry Bridges. You may be familiar with that author. You should become familiar with his writings. I asked Angie, our communications director, to link on our church website to an interview that... um, He conducted, and this is a quote from that interview. Perhaps a good working definition of the fear of God is something like this. To truly fear God means to be in awe of God's being and character. So on the one hand, you're in awe of who He is and His holiness, and that's that's that trembling. That produces that trembling. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he's ushered into the throne room of God. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm standing, falling on my face before this holy God who has every right to annihilate me, to crush me for my sin. So we take that view and we marry it together with the awe of what He has done for us in Christ. What tender, loving mercies. That He just wouldn't just ignore our sin, but He would actually pay for our sins with His own life. The life of His precious Son. His only Son. When you put these two ideas together, you have an absolutely sovereign creator of the universe who punishes those who resist him and yet loves us and sends his son to die in our place. Surely that's good reason to fear or reverence him. So ought we to be afraid of God? Yes. If you're not afraid of this omnipotent, 
omnipotent, holy, righteous God. Something's missing from your theology. But at the same time, He loves us, chooses us, redeems us, calls us His own. We sing, He calls us sons and daughters. If you had a good relationship with your parents growing up, then you have a head start in understanding what this is like. I certainly was afraid of my parents, especially my dad, afraid to get in trouble. My dad's a big guy, big Marine, 6'3", 225. I know, what happened? I I don't know. And yet... Loved to get down on his hands and knees and play with us and be gentle with us. But boy, if you got on his bad side, if you misbehaved, he has this baritone voice. Every once in a while he forgets and he can make his grandchildren tremble in their boots and cry, <laughs> you know. So, Dad, tone it down. There is a good, healthy fear, reverence, awe, love for my parents, for my my father. I know not everyone had that. And yet it does give you a glimpse into what kind of relationship God wants to have with us. The fear of the Lord was modeled, is modeled to us by Jesus Christ. It's strange to think that Jesus feared the Lord. Well, he is the Lord, but when we say fear of the Lord, notice Lord is in all caps. That means we're referring to Yahweh, God, which does refer to the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but specifically more God the Father. This passage from Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy about Messiah coming, and listen to what God revealed to Isaiah, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So there's the third person of the Trinity being sent by the first person of the Trinity to rest on the second person of the Trinity. Are you following? Our Trinitarian God in view, all in one passage here. And the Spirit of wisdom, that's not a different spirit, now lowercase s. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord will be wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thought. So it certainly can't mean that a fear of the Lord is this trembling run and hide from God because Jesus Christ, Messiah, will have the fear of the Lord and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? This is something to delight in, the fear of the Lord. You should be able to say with delight, I fear the Lord. It's a place of safety when you learn to fear the Lord and not fear man. Fear the Lord and not fear man. If God is for me, who can be against me? To know that God's judgments are perfect, so I don't need to fear His judgments. 
that God forgives, so I, I do not need to fear His wrath because He poured His wrath out on His own Son. Look at this, though, that I've underlined for you up there. And He will not judge by what His eyes see nor make a decision by what His ears hear. This is what fear of the Lord looks like. That you're so trusting in God's judgments, in God's definition of reality, in God's point of view, that you don't need your own eyes and your own ears. You see, this is our problem. This is what we've inherited from Adam and Eve. This inclination to say, I need to see it for myself. I need to experience it for myself. I'll decide if it's good or evil. I'll decide if it's good for me or bad for me. I know God has said this, but I need to go decide for myself, and then I'll let God know if he was right. And I know we would all say, no, 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 I, I would never do that. I know I'm not supposed to, oh, goodness, I do that all the time, don't I? It's in me, it's inherent in my sin nature. We see it in our children, certainly. They got to go find out the hard way often that that is not going to be good for them. And sadly, the things that are worse for you, sometimes the consequences are so far down the road that in the short term, you reap some instant gratification. And it's hard to convince children that, yeah, I know it feels good now, but just wait. Trust me, you don't want to go down that road. And we see that in our children, and that's bound up in our own hearts as well. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. There's a God who judges. And so, yes, we should fear this God who is all holy and has the right to judge us, the right to smite any of us right now where we sit. And yet, and yet, loves us, died for us, calls us his own. It's meant to keep us in this tension, and it's a healthy tension to be living between those two realities. You drift too far one way or the other, and you get out of balance. Either God becomes this oppressive tyrant, and you're trying to hide from him because nothing you can do is going to please him. Or he's this pushover who just kind of looks the other way when, when you sin. He's neither of those things. Well, if the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom, do we even want wisdom? Before I preach any further, we need to find out what wisdom is according to God. And it, is it something you want? And I think if you ask most people, do you have wisdom? They would say, yes. I'm no fool. Would you like more wisdom? Yes. 
at VBS during teaching time. I know when I ask all those kids, raise your hand if you want godly wisdom this week. They're all going to raise their hand. And yet foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs said. If everybody thinks they're wise and everybody says they want wisdom, why are we surrounded by so much foolishness in our country? And let's be honest, present company included, there's a whole lot of foolishness in this room as well. Can I get an amen? Amen. Is that directed at me or all of us? (laughs) All of us, thank you. We're certainly an unholy amalgamation of godly wisdom and worldly wisdom in our present condition. Do you understand that? We're, we're being purified, but the process is painful at times. It takes heat, takes fire, takes trials to get all that worldly wisdom out of us. We hope with our children that... W- we can get a head start by filling them with as much godly wisdom as we can. So what is this godly wisdom? To the Hebrew mind, wisdom was not just knowledge. So I hope as you're teaching your children, you're not just packing facts into their heads. But it's the skill of living a godly life as God intended man to live. You better be modeling it first and foremost because children, right, caught more than taught. I hope you're not living the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of life. You should be adorning godly wisdom by making it look attractive, something they'd want. When they go out into the world, I hope their default mode is godly wisdom. Even if they don't know where it came from or how it got in there, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Now, we don't want people running around living in godly ways without acknowledging God because that's just moralism. And God doesn't like self-righteous moralism. Certainly, I'm hearing the older generation say, hey, I can tell you one thing. It was a lot better living in America when godly wisdom filled the streets. Even if people didn't acknowledge where it was coming from, at least there was some decency and integrity and some boundaries people knew not to cross even if they weren't crossing those boundaries because they were afraid of the consequences and not because they would dishonor their Lord. They said that, that, that was a, a more pleasant world to live in. And things are changing. We understand. But don't lose heart because I think as foolishness fills our, our world and our country, godly wisdom will shine even brighter. People will see it for the treasure that it is. And the Bible says, be prepared to give an answer, right, for the hope that is within you. I hope that our lives will be filled with godly wisdom to honor God, yes, and to have a better life. Have a better life. You live according to God's ways, you're just going to live a better life. But even more importantly, that it would be compelling to the people around us. And hopefully you live this godly life with humility. 
Because living godly wisdom with pride and arrogance is a turnoff to the world. And I would even submit that if you have godly wisdom and a lot of pride, you probably don't have godly wisdom. You've got a lot of good life skills. And you've put them into practice and things have turned out well for you. And really, you've caught some good breaks too. And I know there's those out there that say, well, you make your own breaks. I think when we get to heaven and God shows us all that He's done in our life behind the scenes, we'll be even more filled with awe at His grace in our lives. Wisdom is different than intelligence. You can be smart and foolish. Amen? You can be smart and foolish. Godly wisdom is also differently than worldly wisdom, yet they'll overlap in places because of God's common grace. It's not that everybody out there who's an unbeliever is a complete and utter fool. And we we know people, right? You know people who are unbelievers, and they've got their lives together better than some of the believers you know. And it's almost kind of like, God, what do I do with that? Well, if the gospel was just Jesus wants you to live a wiser life, then you've got nothing. You can go to those people and say, hey, follow my Jesus. Why? I already live better than half your church. Well, yeah, that's true. That's kind of embarrassing. I don't need your Jesus if that's what your Jesus is. No, our Jesus is because you need to live a righteous life. And there is none righteous, no, not one. And yet Jesus can also provide us a life of wisdom, but that wisdom has to start with the gospel. The greatest fool is the one who thinks there's no God or that he doesn't need to be saved. That is a person doomed to be reminded of his foolishness for all eternity in the worst of ways. Proverbs 1.4 talks about giving prudence to the simple. This word simple in the Hebrew, I love it. It, it. The word literally means an open door. An open door. You see, in our culture, having an open mind is the highest virtue. In God's economy, having an open mind is a sign of a naive fool. The wise person closes the door to foolish philosophies and ideas. Right? You keep the door closed. The wise person waits for wisdom to knock, checks the peephole. Oh, that's godly wisdom. I'm letting her in. The fool leaves the front door open and lets all philosophies, all ideas, come rushing in, taking up residence, eating your food, crashing on your couch. Yes. And by the time you realize, hey, this is foolishness. I got to get this out of here. Too late. You got squatters living there. You know how hard it is to get foolishness out of your head, foolish ideas, foolish habits. They don't, they don't leave easily. And when you do kick them out, they leave a mess behind. So, stop being so open-minded and be closed-minded. 
Be open-minded to the things of God. Not to the things of the world. Jesus is wisdom personified. You want to know what wisdom looks like? Look at Christ. There is wisdom incarnate. In fact, the Greeks had a, a term for this wisdom that held the universe together, the laws of the, the cosmos. What, what, what do we call this thing? There's definitely a something out there, you know, like Star Wars would call it the Force. They called it the Logos. Greek for word, idea, logic, the Logos. And John comes along, writes his gospel, and he says, yes, in the beginning was the Logos. And, and the Greeks said, yes, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, yes. And the Logos was God. Really? And we go on to read, and he became flesh and dwelt among the Logos became a person? Scandalous. Jesus is wisdom personified. You want to know what wisdom looks like? Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Listen to His teaching. Sit at His feet. And if more is taught than taught, then emulate Jesus. I know many people who live a very godly, wisdom-filled life that have a hard time articulating the Bible and the teachings of God, but they're saturated with Jesus and wisdom just oozes out of them. And I want to learn from these people and I go and sit down to talk to them and and uh, I think I just have to follow them and watch them and, and emulate them. It's very humbling because I make my living speaking words. And there's so many around us, even in this own church, who may not be great with their words, but boy, do they live godly wisdom. I thank God for giving us a church with people like that to learn from. Hope you appreciate that, too. In Colossians 2.2, it reads, "...that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Isn't that wonderful? It's, it, it's all in there. He's the perfect gift of salvation, we understand that, but He's the perfect gift of knowledge and wisdom. I hope you don't take that gift and and just kind of tuck it away on the highest shelf because you don't want it to get broken or, you know, let's open this gift up and enjoy Christ. Learn from Him. Become like Him. Become wise. All right, so we're, we understand the fear of the Lord now and godly wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want wisdom, you need fear of the Lord. That's the first step. Don't run out and try to go get godly wisdom without fear of the Lord because you know what will happen? You'll see godly wisdom, 
and without fear of the Lord, it won't be attractive to you. Or you'll want it for the wrong reasons. Oh, I want to be one of those wise, godly wise people in the church so that I get promoted to some better leadership position or so my business will improve, so all the people in the church will want to come to me because of my wisdom. Or people will come to me with all their questions and I'll have all the answers. Somebody with fear of the Lord instead would say, I want people to come to me with their questions so I can point them to the Lord because He has all the answers. I want godly wisdom not to enhance my personal business and enhance my checkbook, but so that I can have a better witness and testimony in the world. I want people to be compelled to know where that wisdom comes from so I can tell them about my Jesus. If you don't have fear of the Lord, when you hear godly wisdom, you'll be stiff-necked. In your pride, you won't want to listen to it because it's an affront to our own worldly wisdom. God's wisdom makes man's wisdom look like foolishness. Funny, Paul uses a little sanctified sarcasm in 1 Corinthians when he says that the foolishness of God, there's no foolishness with God, but if there was, it would make the wisdom of man look even more foolish. His foolishness compared to man's greatest wisdom, there's no, there's no comparison. He uses a, a, a little hyperbole there to make, make a point. What we think is this great wisdom that we all have when we come to God's Word, it's absolutely pride-crushing. Everybody says they have wisdom. Think about it. What's the first thing you do after going to the movies? Well, before hitting the restroom on the way home. What's the second thing you do in the car? You start what? Critiquing the movie. Well, I would have filmed this scene a little different. I'm so sure about that theme. And you're like, you're talking about somebody who poured their heart and soul into writing a script and filming and years it took to put that thing on the screen and within 30 seconds, you're Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> and I can only imagine what conversations go on in the car on the way home from the sermon. <laughs> What do people do after reading a book? Never mind, people don't read books anymore. After reading a Facebook post. Like, dislike. They haven't even absorbed what you've said and they're all ready. I'm posting my response. I don't know any self-professing fools in this world. And when I hear one, it's really pride wearing a mask. I do it all the time. Here's what it looks like. You do something kind of stupid at home. I don't know, you leave the milk out, it expires, and you go, oh, how could you be so stupid, Brent? Because you're not that stupid. In fact, you're brilliant. <laughs> you know. I must have got distracted by one of the kids. 
it's, it's their fault. So when people say, how could I have been so stupid? It's not because they think they're foolish. It's because they think the opposite of themselves. And how could a person as wise as myself do something like this? This is what all those stupid people do. Not me. Not I. <laughs> Romans 1, Paul explains that all of humanity is guilty of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Which means we exchange the wisdom of God with worldly wisdom. Remember, this is Genesis 3. Man and woman had everything they needed, perfect relationship with God. God revealed to them everything they need to know about the world, about God, about who they are, what their purpose is. And instead, they chose the way of self-determination, self-wisdom, self-knowledge. They thought their wisdom would exceed that of God's. And we've all inherited that. We want to help the kids of EBS this week understand on some level, depending on their age level, that that is something they're going to have to struggle with. Because they're going to all say, I want godly wisdom, but you have to help your kids understand why they won't actually chase after the very thing that they said that they want. We're older than they are. We're a little bit wiser just by experience. We, we know they will fall for the oldest tricks in the books because humanity has been falling for Satan's tricks. Nothing new under the sun. We have to help our young people understand what the stumbling block will be towards gaining wisdom. And the stumbling block is not having this fear of the Lord. So why doesn't man fear the Lord? Number one, either he convinces, convinces himself there is no God. And you can be a believer and live like a functional atheist. You come to church, you profess Christ, and then once you go out the doors, you look and act and think just like an unbeliever. You have the same goals, same motivations, Same thought life, watch the same TV shows, buy the same products. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Psalm 14.1 Or, secondly, which I think is what most of us as believers are guilty of, is that we exchange the Creator for the creature. Psalm 50.21 God says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. So leading up to verse 21 was a whole list of things we're guilty of. And God says, I've been silent, but now you thought that I was one like yourself. Now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Here's, here's our problem. We thought God was one like ourselves. We brought the holy down to the profane. We brought the infinite down to the finite. The immortal down to the mortal. And when you put God down here, which is not where he belongs, and that's not true about him, but now we can 
treat him as a peer and rise above him. This is the way we treat one another. I'll listen to your ideas, but at the end of the day, I'm going to decide if I like your idea or not. So I'm the final judge. The way it needs to work with God is that His ideas are right. No judging to do. It's up to us to accept them, learn them, live them, embrace them. Align our ideas under God's submit to place under. What does the fear of the Lord look like? We've talked about this already, but I want to give you a fuller picture of the fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10.12, Moses speaking to the nation Israel before they go into the land. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? You see, this is important to God. Well, what does that look like, Moses? To walk in all his ways and love him. Most people would not put fear and love together in the same sentence, but God does. Fear of the Lord means to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments in his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. It's for our good. Jerry Bridges says, one-fourth of all the fear of the Lord passages in the Bible include obedience. And yet we also know that the Lord Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So, Fear of the Lord, obedience, and love all wrapped up together in the same idea. Martin Luther understood this. I was was raised Lutheran, and to become confirmed in the Lutheran Church, you had to memorize a lot of Luther's small catechism. Anyone remember those days out there? Can I get a hand? No one. Oh, there's a hand. There's another hand. And a lot of the catechisms would start off with to fear and love God. And I remember that being confusing to me when I was younger. Fear and love, they seem like opposites, antonyms, right? But they're not. They're not. To fear and love God. Fear, trust. Implies trust. Yes, it also implies, this is not somebody I want to trifle with. That's okay to have a healthy fear of God. I don't want to trifle with the Most High. He's he's like, you know what? Nothing fits the analogy. I can't tell you who He's like. I'm trying to picture someone you should be afraid of and then say God's like that. He's not like that at all. Because that guy should tremble in God's presence. So how do we cultivate the fear of the Lord? I'm going to quickly give you six, six things you can do, start doing, start thinking about this week to cultivate fear of the Lord. You want godly wisdom? You need to cultivate fear of the Lord first. Number one, reverence His Word. I know we are a church of the Word. The Word is central here. We preach the Word. We teach the Word. 
that you can be saturated in an environment of God's Word and it not get into your heart at all because there is a lack of reverence for it. Deuteronomy 31.12 Assemble the people, the men and the women and the children and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. See, our, our country understood this principle. Even though we have religious freedom, they knew that we needed a culture that feared the Lord. And so... God's Word was incorporated even into the public school years and years ago, prayer in school, Ten Commandments. See, it says, even bring the alien who is in your town, the outsider. If they're going to live in this community, they need to know the fear of the Lord. How will they know the fear of the Lord? By hearing and reverencing His Word. You lose reverence for God's word in a community, in a city, in a state, in a country, and you can't hire enough police. You can't hire enough police. You can't build enough prisons. There needs to be a healthy fear of the Lord in every man and woman's heart that I can't get away with this even if nobody's looking because there's always somebody who's watching, and I should care most about what he sees than what anyone else sees. You understand that with your own children. Outward discipline is helpful and useful, but you can't watch over them every single second. They need to have that internal fear of the Lord, internal love for God. External motivator is powerful, but nothing compared to internal motivation. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. So look at your life, evaluate your life. Are you reverencing the Word of God? Are you getting it in you? Do you study it? Remember when you were 16 and you wanted to take your driver's test and you studied that manual, like it was the most important thing in the world? Is that how you study God's Word? Or are you just reading cover to cover to say, I finished my Bible in a year? As our children work on their Awana verses, I'll stop them in the home and say, well, wait a minute, what does that verse even mean? When David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, it doesn't mean that he just wrote, memorized God's word. Hiding it in your heart means it's become part of your heart. You understand what it means, you believe it, you embrace it. So in the critical moment when you have that decision to make, it's God's word that governs your thoughts and your behavior. Yes, memorize God's word, but make sure you 
dwell on it, meditate on it, chew on it, digest it, ask questions of yourself. If, if we don't get this one right, then the next five don't matter. This is where we lost fear of the Lord in the garden. Did, did God really say, Satan said, Did he really say you would die? The second thing you can do is humble yourself in prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do your prayers start with recognizing and affirming God's absolute holiness, sovereignty? That your name, just your name is holy? Of course, your whole being is holy, but holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This whole prayer is about cultivating fear of the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread, right? Because if it doesn't come from you, where else is it going to come from? Forgive us our debts, because only you can forgive our debts eternally. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Humble yourself in prayer. That will cultivate fear of the Lord. A person who doesn't pray, show me a person who doesn't pray, I'll show you a person with no fear of the Lord. Remember, fear isn't just, I better pray or God's going to be mad at me. That's not fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is this intimate relationship with this God who's redeemed you with His own blood. Why wouldn't you want to talk to Him? To humble yourself at His feet and learn from Him. Thirdly, then, consider his power in creation. This will help us to not let fear of man override fear of the Lord. When you consider all that God has made, the more we learn from science about God's creation, the more amazing and awe-inspiring our God becomes. It's absolutely confounding to me that our most brilliant scientists end up drifting away from God instead of toward Him. You would think that this would just leave them in awe of God's amazing creative power, His amazing intelligence. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? There's somebody with a healthy fear of the Lord. And yet, you have made him, man, a little lower than God. Now, I know we're a lot lower than God, but the point is, out of all of God's creation, we bear the image of God and He loves us and wants to have relationship with us so to the extent that He would die to pay for our sins. That's an amazing, amazing, awe-inspiring, fear-cultivating thought. Nathan likes to say, nobody stands at the foot of Half Dome and El Capitan and say, I am awesome.
Fourth, consider his power in judgment. Jerry Bridges is saying that our, our, our society has completely lost this healthy fear of the Lord, uh, a la Second Peter. You know, well, nothing happened to me today after I sinned. Uh, the Bible, I don't really think anything's going to happen. It's just fairy tales. Or, God's not mad at me. I, uh, Rob Bell told me, Love wins. Nobody's getting punished. I saw that on Oprah. (laughs) This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, they will say, well, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God once judged the entire planet and drowned every living thing except eight people. And we have the evidence all around us to remind us Billions of dead things lay down by water all over the earth. Fossils. They give testimony to God's terrible and awesome judgment. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. How are you going to be found without spot or blemish when Christ returns? Because I don't know about you, but I'm spotty and blemishy. And that leads us to our fifth point consider his power in salvation. Yes, his judgment will be terrible. Those of you studying Revelation right now, you realize those judgments terrible. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, you know, keep it in a book, who could stand before you? But with you there is forgiveness, and get this, that you may be feared. Have you ever associated his forgiveness with fear of the Lord? Here it is laid out for us. This meditating on this great salvation and what it cost God his 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 very life ought to cultivate fear. A healthy fear of the Lord. 
amazing love, the, the great cost, this lavish love that God's poured out on us, this will produce the awe and motivation which then motivates us to act. You're not acting in obedience because you're afraid of God getting mad at you or what He'll do to you. God wants us to act as His people motivated by His love and His grace. Certainly, I don't want to sin because there's consequences to my sin and I'm afraid. As afraid as I was to disobey my earthly father, I'll let you finish the thought. The book of James tells us that wisdom is hearing plus doing. Hearing the word of God plus doing. So our last point, and only until we get to the end, and we've done these other five things, ought we to cultivate fear of the Lord through acting. And specifically, I want you to consider giving your treasure, time, and talents to the Lord. Because those who fear the Lord align their priorities with God's priorities. Beloved, we slip into apathy and frivolous pursuits way too easily, amen? It starts with a little rest and recreation and then somehow turns into a lifestyle. So if you find yourself there today, you need to recultivate some fear of the Lord. Interestingly, God says that giving, tithing, cultivates fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 14.22 I understand this was given to Israel, but we are called also to give generously. So we can have a talk another time about whether the tithe is for New Testament believers. I think he expects at least 10%. We get to live on the other side of the cross. What an amazing motivator that is. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Tithing teaches fear of the Lord. Why? Because it recognizes that it all came from him in the first place, and he can turn off the spigot anytime he wants. That he's a good God and blesses us abundantly. That I can live on what is left after I give. If God expects this from us, he wouldn't leave us without provision. So maybe a good time to sit down and look at your finances and see where your first fruits are going. Give until it hurts and then live to learn humbly on the rest. And by give till it hurts, I mean you should give until it affects your lifestyle. If, if when you give, it doesn't affect at all your standard of living then you're probably not giving 
enough. There's no fear of the Lord there. There's no, look, if, whether I had this money or not, it's not going to change a thing how I live. That's not training your heart to fear the Lord. And I'm not going to just camp out on money here. Your time and your talents as well. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Want to cultivate fear of the Lord? Busy yourself with evangelism and discipleship. If you have a ton of time for pursuing frivolous activities, I'm not saying no rest and no recreation. There's a place for that. But you know what happens in your life. One TV show turns into two, turns into five, turns into couch potato. Signing your kids up for an activity goes from, I I want them to learn a sport, to sport becomes their God. And I don't know when it happens and where it happens, but it happens. And so you redeem those things for Christ. And you say, we're going to do sports, but we're going to pray that God would show us which family on this team needs to know the salvation of the Lord. Whether we win or lose, doesn't matter. We're going to invite that family to our house for dinner and share the Lord with them. Don't waste your sports. Don't waste your hobbies. Don't waste your activities on things that don't matter. Jesus said, my food is to do my Father's work. That should be our food and drink as well. Well, I think you get the point. I have changes I need to make. So do you. Let's pray for one another right now and throughout the week. For fear of the Lord and godly wisdom. Heavenly Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus to give us a hunger and craving for you. This fear of the Lord you've taught us and demonstrated in Christ. That is what we want. And then we hunger and thirst after righteousness and godly wisdom. Teach us to live according to your ways, for your glory, our good, and to be a compelling witness to our foolish world. Keep us from being attracted to the foolishness of this world, frivolous pursuits, dainty morsels, and collectibles, all kinds of stuff that we waste our time your time, your money, things we waste our gift and talents on. Lord, redeem all that for your good, again, for your glory. And ultimately, we would trust it would be for our good and our betterment as well. Lord, I pray this for our entire church. I pray this for myself, for my family. I pray for all the kids who come to VBS this week that they would want to know you, know your salvation, and know how to live godly lives until your return. Amen. Amen.